Hi there. I'm so excited to welcome you to the Arthritis Life Podcast, where we share arthritis life stories and tips for thriving with autoimmune arthritis. My name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis beyond joint pain. I've been living with rheumatoid arthritis for 20 years, and I'm also a mom, occupational therapist, video creator, support group leader, and I created the Room to Thrive self-management program. I am so excited to help you live a more empowered life with arthritis. We're going to cover everything from kitchen life hacks to navigating the healthcare system to coping with friends who just don't get it. Seriously, no topic is going to be off limits on this podcast. My interviewees and I share our honest stories of how chronic illness affects our lives. This includes discussions about mental health, sex, shame, pregnancy, body image, advocacy, self-acceptance, and so much more. You'll hear stories from all ends of the spectrum, from a person who's living in Medicaid remission from psoriatic arthritis to somebody living with severe mobility restrictions and severe pain from rheumatoid arthritis. You'll hear how people manage their conditions in different ways, like medications, mindfulness, movement, social support, work accommodations, and so much more. You'll also hear from rheumatology experts who just get it. We'll dive deep into the science behind chronic pain and what's the latest evidence for lifestyle changes that can help you thrive with arthritis, including exercise, sleep, nutrition, stress reduction, and more. This is your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. Hi, my name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis. I've lived with rheumatoid arthritis for 17 years, and I'm also a mom, teacher, and occupational therapist. I'm so excited to share my tricks for managing the ups and downs of life with arthritis. Everything from kitchen life hacks to how to respond when people say you don't look sick, stress, work, sex, anxiety, fatigue, pregnancy, and parenting with chronic illness. No topic will be off limits here. I'll also talk to other patients and share their stories and advice. Think of this as your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. Hey, hi Maria, welcome to the Arthritis Life Podcast. Well, thank you, Cheryl, for inviting me again. I'm so happy that we're going to have this conversation now in your class because we have done it in mine. So it's your turn now. I'm yeah, so very happy. I'm really excited. So can we just start off with the basics? Can you let the audience know a little bit about yourself, yes. like your age and where you live and some of your favorite hobbies? Okay, yes. Um, my name is Maria Gonzalez, uh, as they said. Um, um, so I'm 39 years old. I'm 40 or almost close to 40 like Cheryl but not yet I'm gonna be 40 this August um as a career I'm a photographer um a graphic design as well and I'm going through that process of trying to swap from photography to graphic design mostly it's been due to my rheumatoid arthritis I've been with rheumatoid arthritis for a very long time now um close to Cheryl at the same time I think we have like similar stories I'm originally from Venezuela, so in South America. So I speak Spanish. That's what we speak in Venezuela. And I've been living in Australia for 12 years. I live in Sydney right now. So for almost six years, I think it is. I first arrived to Australia to a small town in, in called Adelaide. Uh, well, it's not small. It's, it's like a big, it's like a one million, I think it is. But uh, still, it's not as big as Sydney. And it's been interesting for me also to do this. Uh, changing of cities. I also educated myself in the United States and it's been all with my uh, rheumatoid arthritis. So it's been quite an interesting journey there. Uh, what else can I tell you about myself? I love drawing. It's one of my passions as well. Um, I love to write as well. I've been doing poetry. I've been doing like this exercise, like sort of journaling, but with poetry so yeah that's me and I've been trying to uh, stay optimistic with my arthritis through exercise and, and little routines that I do to keep my mind uh, <laughs> especially my mind healthy in this process but yeah that's great I love hearing about that and yes I 
I wore my artistic little shirt today with these little mounds with <laughs> eyeballs on it. Yeah. No, and I think it's interesting. So many people I know with rheumatoid arthritis are artistic. And obviously because the disease can affect your hands so much, it can make it harder to do things like drawing. Does your rheumatoid arthritis affect your ability to draw? Okay. It does. Yes, it does. uh, During the time that I used to have it uh, uh, like out of control, I had really struggled with even holding the mouse or you know, just like holding a pencil. Yeah, that could be an issue. But it also keeps you like working, working yourself mm-hmm. as well. Like, yeah. Yeah. So it's good to keep using those muscles in your hands too. So yeah, that delicate balance between um, yes. resting them when they're too sore and then you, you know, but not resting them so much that you lose your muscle. So yeah, that's, I, did you develop any or did you use any life hacks or things like, you know, a wide grip pencil or an alternate design or anything? Uh, like like the ones of the little kids. Oh, I used to have one here. I, I think I remember. But, you know, the ones that help you, like, it gives you like a bigger grip. Uh, yes. Like a thicker, I don't know how to explain. That helps a lot because one of the hard things to do when your hands are out of control and you have a flur is to do this. Uh, this actual movement and I saw your videos the one that you did is so helpful mm-hmm. and even just like seeing this type of video actually helps you improve your technique on how you want to improve how to hold in the pencil uh, yes uh, so anything that helps you the the little bowls that are for exercise oh I used to have it as well here I, I remember but you know those squishy bowls oh yeah also to improve my hands this one which I have already uh, very damaged, like I, I cannot bend it. Uh, it does help me with the grip and to improve my exercise in the hands, really. There are many exercises for the hands. Uh, also, the ones that where you put like a cloth on the table and you open and close it, that yeah. really helps. Uh, uh, there are many things that you could do, but definitely holding a pen can be one of those, <laughs> especially if you're not feeling that comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, thank We've already gone off script, but I just wanted to ask you that, but yeah, but yeah, today we're yes. going to talk about your story and a little bit about what inspired you to form your own magazine. It's Spanish mm-hmm. language magazine, which I'm about rheumatoid arthritis and mm-hmm. other things. So I can't wait to talk about that. But first I, I always mm-hmm. like to start if I'm talking to somebody who has lived experience with rheumatoid arthritis or someone who's a patient you know, I'm always curious about people's diagnosis journey. You know, was it hard? Yes. Was it easy to get diagnosed? And what was your experience? Okay, yes. Well, I was very young. I was 21. I was on a job with my whole family. We're doing like a Disney uh, in Orlando where you walk all day. And I, I had like a, a little bit of, I, I didn't feel right, like in my hip. And, but I kept going, kept going all through the day. We saw the fireworks. We were going to go to a restaurant afterwards, after Disney. And when I was getting out of the band, I couldn't get out. I said to my family, like, okay, I cannot walk. And they were horrified, especially my mom, like, what are you talking about? Get out of the car. What is going on? And I was like, I swear, I cannot move my leg. This leg, the, the right one. And she said, like, no, this is not right. But lucky for me, my sister, she's a doctor back in Venezuela. She's a GP. Um, but she was living in the United States at the time where she wasn't practicing or anything, but she's a doctor. And she told me, like, uh, she asked me a few questions. So how do you feel? What is going on? You know, like the typical questions that doctors ask. And she said to me, uh, you're going to have to go to the doctor once you get back to Venezuela because you're going to have to see if this is rheumatoid arthritis. And she even said the word rheumatoid arthritis first time I heard that. And I, she was like, this could be nothing. It could be something else, but you need to go check yourself. I remember that that night my brother had to carry me to the restaurant and then I was able to walk again. So it was like a small blur, like a, like it lasted hours they gave me some like a panadol or something and it helped me out a little bit um so that was my first experience i got back to venezuela got everything of the test the and i had the rheumatoid factor very high and lucky for me i I had that thing going on in my blood 
because right. I know a lot of people are zero negative and you don't get to see that for a long time. But for me, I had everything like going on. But my arthritis at the beginning is like I had a flare one day and another one a month after. So, so I was lucky to see that I had the rheumatoid factor very high, that I had some symptoms like the pain in the in the hip. Then I think I had another in the shoulder, but it was like um like a month in between. So it wasn't very often. It was very hard for me. If I hadn't had my sister telling me you have rheumatoid arthritis, I could have gone who knows six months or a year without knowing. Because that's the, that's the thing. Many people don't know. And they don't have a sister who is a doctor. So that's what I'm trying to say. Like, uh, I was lucky to have that, to have that opportunity, to have somebody telling me, oh, these are your symptoms, this is what is going on. <clears throat> when it comes to, to the doctors, I was lucky as well. I come from a family of doctors, so we know people, and that helped me out uh, a lot. And also that I go through the private system in my country, which is, uh, a big deal for us in South America. Like you could either have the option to go to public and there is a lot of problems there. So um, so that helped me out. It was very fast. I was like, diagnosed very early. Uh, so in that sense, uh, when people tell you and doctors tell you, if they get you and diagnose, I think it does, it helps you out. And I can see, I, I, I'm proof of it. it. It does, because I've been 20 years in my illness and I feel I feel I can still go a few more. <laughs> that's, that's great. You know, and yeah, often I hear this, the opposite story, you know, that there was a difficult time getting diagnosed or being believed. So it's always good to hear yes. the positive stories where, you know, you got your diagnosis oh. quickly and yeah. Yeah. Although when it comes to my emotions, I did went through the whole rant um, of emotions of, rheumatoid arthritis I got horribly depressed I was very angry at the beginning I felt that all my plans had stopped because we, we were so young you and me we were so young when we were diagnosed I don't yeah. know about you but for me it also got me in a really bad time I was changing from art I wanted to do something different in my life and I was okay I'm gonna study photography and this is what I'm gonna do and boom you get the diagnosis and I was like wait can I go? Can I still go to the United States to study? I wasn't. I wasn't sure. I was very clueless. I had no idea what was happening. So, yeah. Uh, so that was a downside for me. I went through a very angry period, um, the depression, uh, because uh, I wasn't feeling well. I was only controlled with the state at the time. I felt very alone as yeah. well. Like, I don't know about you. Like, I didn't knew anywhere. Everyone in that age is like, oh, let's go to parties. And I'm like, I'm going to the couch to sleep. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, so I, it's very yeah. hard at, the, at that time. That's more common. Yeah, I, I was a bit lucky because I guess due to the severity and just due to my doctor's training, she put me on really aggressive medication really, really quickly. And I went into medicated remission within a few months. So I was wow. feeling so much better. I'd been feeling really bad for a long time and without knowing why. And then, so when I felt so much better, so quickly, I didn't really grieve it at all. I was just happy. Right. And like, that's my memory of it. Of course, I wish I had better journals and things, but then five years later, five to six years later, when my medicated remission wore off and I, I had to switch medicines and actually learn what the disease was more Then I really grieved it. So, you know, it's, again, there's not this linear story, you know, some people, they go through those stages of grief right after the diagnosis, other people like me, it was like, my doctor was super optimistic. She said, you know, you're a soccer player, you're active. Like that's our goal is to keep you active for the next like 80 years, you know, as I was 20, like you, you know, yes. 21. So yeah. Um, I was like, okay, I believe you. You're like the nicest doctor I've ever had. <laughs> so, yes. um, but then after five, six years, we had to have another conversation like, okay, well, that's the goal, but we have to sometimes recalibrate the goal, you know, but I was a little bit, I would almost say maybe just too optimistic. Cause I think it is smart to think about how your disease can affect your life. And I was in this kind of simplistic, like, like I can do anything I want. 
You know what I mean? So yeah, you were probably more realistic. Well, but for me, it was also everything I want. But then I hit the wall of arthritis because it was so early that they diagnosed me. I decided to go to the United States without knowing what was going on. And then I, in, in the U.S., I was all by myself well, with my brothers, but not without my parents who would have seen me and telling me, no, this is not right, I need to go to the doctor. Uh, and I was also like on a sort of denial, like this is not happening to me. And I was feeling like horrible. And I was like, no, I can't do anything. <laughs> who am I kidding? And I was like, really, I couldn't, uh, I was studying photography at the time. Sometimes I couldn't hold the equipment right. Uh, photography is all about uh, uh, stands and lights and equipment and heavy things and I was with my hands you can imagine all my knuckles were like huge from everywhere Uh, but I still I don't know I had like a mindset that I really wanted to do this so I still do did it but at the same time in my feelings and emotions were out of control because I was feeling awful so if anyone is listening to this and you're going through this stage, you can be on denial at times. And that's fine because it's also, I feel like at the process of understanding what is going on with you. So it's okay if you go through this, but you need to get back on track. And, uh, and there was a time when I said I had to stop. I was like, I have to stop. I need to go back to Venezuela, see a doctor and take other medication because I was only taking methotrexate, no prednisone, no nothing for for the other on top things that I could have control. And it was too much. When I firstly was diagnosed, um, I remember that my doctor, I'm sure he told me many things, but one of the things that my head was, uh, if you don't take the medication, you could end up on a wheelchair. And I was like, oh, that, that was like what stuck with me. And sometimes when you go to that first, uh, when they're going to tell you the diagnose, everything seems very bad. Everything that the doctor is telling you, it seemed like uh, like a bomb that is going on in your world. Like everything is get disrupted and you don't know what to do. So uh, so if anyone is getting diagnosed, uh, we get you. Uh, we, we understand. And in some in some way, the doctors do have to say that, unfortunately. Because they have to make you like a wake-up call, like shake you and make you realize that, yes, this is, this is real. This is happening. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to add that. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're the second person to say that. And it's funny because I don't remember my doctor saying that, but my parents do. Um, they remember my, the, my mom was in the room with me and she remembers them saying that, um, well, it was after they told me about the medication and I didn't have any hesitancy because I was so desperate for any relief. Cause I had been feeling so yeah. badly for so long and been told I was just a hypochondriac, you know, that finally someone was listening yeah. to me and then giving me a medication. I'm like, I'm not asking any questions. I'm going to take this, you know? And yeah. uh, my mom was like, well, wait a minute. Does she really need this? Because, you know, if you read the side effects, it says all yes. sorts of scary things. And then the doc, that's when the doctor threw, threw out that, I, you know, concept of, you know, that it can, that is a progressive disease. And I think it's a very tenuous thing because on the one hand, like it makes me uncomfortable sometimes thinking about people using that an analogy of you might end up in a wheelchair as if that's like literally the worst case scenario. I know that's not how you meant it, but like there are exactly. many people in wheelchairs who live yeah. like wonderful you know, full lives. I'm not saying that as like inspiration porn, but like literally, you know, full complicated lives, just like anyone else. But it is like, it's something that people, the doctors say, because it's, it's hard for people to get into the mindset of the word arthritis, meaning something systemic and serious and not just like my knee hurts, you know? Yeah. Also like to give you like a visual tool of how this fat can get uh, and as you say, it doesn't necessarily mean that you cannot have a fulfilled life if you end up in this situation or if your disability is delayed very fast. Or, mm-hmm. But uh, what they try to tell you or warn you there, many doctors, is like you need to take the medication. Uh, for me, that's what it has worked. I know that you have interviewed other people who are not taking any. I don't know how that works, but 
for me, what I, I don't either. <laughs> some people are like, <laughs> some people, the diet stuff work. All I can say it works for some people, the diet, but it's yes. the majority of people need medication. That's for sure. Yes. Uh, what has worked for me is medication. And, and truly, even though the metrics say didn't work uh, fully, like I never felt the same again, like, because also you're expecting, I think what most people have in is like, if I have a headache, I take Panadol and it goes away. But the thing for us is that it never really goes fully away. It, right. There is always, even though you're taking medication, there is always a slight, uh, uh, a little bit of there. <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. But yes, there is always something going on. Um, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it differs. I think the idea of full medicated remission or unmedicated remission is that you don't have any, you know, inflammation um, due to the medication and stuff. But for the, for a lot of people like us, who have had it for a couple of decades. Yeah. You might expect to still have some kind of flare ups here and there. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And then, um, Oh yeah. Was there anything else you wanted to say about the diagnosis experience or your initial kind of well, adjustment period? Yeah. My adjustment period I took, uh, I probably the first five years, I would say it's learning experience. Then you learn how to master it a little bit more. And sometimes at the beginning, I swear, sometimes I used to say to myself, I cannot do this anymore. I don't want to live like this. This is horrible. And there were other days where I was like more optimistic. I've said like, if I don't do this, what is going to do it for me? So I better get this thing going on and do the exercise and try to do the best that I can, take the medication, do everything that I have to do. But that doesn't mean that I always felt like that. Uh, there were some very sad moments in these five years of understanding what this is all about. Also, and I wanted to add, because I feel that we, at the time, we didn't have any information. I remember leaving my diagnosis with the little that they give you, like the booklet, and I'm like, where am I supposed to go now? What am I supposed to do? And and if you if we use Google or whatever, I don't think Google even existed. But anyway, uh, suppose that you uh, search it on the net, there was really nothing. Uh, there was the same information that the doctor gave you in the booklet. That's what you will find on the internet. We didn't have the chance to speak to other patients. We didn't have this at all. So this has been a huge uh, difference for everyone like social media. And even though that I don't have you next to me, or, or I, I know that I can contact you, Cheryl, I'm in a horrible situation, help me out and you will be a support. Um, we didn't have that before. So you have a great time and opportunity now to, to use this tool. And yeah, to make it's, the most of it. Yeah. It's so great. It really is. If you've lived through not having social media and technology to connect, you know, it's, it's just hard to imagine it's hard to explain to people who've had it their whole lives, like the younger people, you know, the people who are 21 today getting diagnosed, the world is totally different for them. You know, they can immediately within an hour of a diagnosis. I mean, I've seen people do this on Facebook groups or Instagram, be like, yeah. oh my gosh, where's my people? Like, where's yeah. my tribe? You know, where are my other people going through this? And you can, and, and it's not all sunshine and rainbows, you know, there's definitely problems that I've talked about before too. And I'm sure you have experienced some yes. downsides, but, um, but yeah, what was yes. I going to say? Oh yeah. And then when you were talking about, you know, the adjustment, I mean, I would say like adjusting to your diagnosis. I mean, I, to me, it's an ongoing process, right? Cause I've, yes. yeah. By the time I adjusted to being a person in my twenties with it, I was then in my thirties and then I was like, okay, yeah. well, I'm in a different oh, stage exactly. of life. You know, I'm getting married. I'm going to have a child. Like I, this is a, everything's constantly something new to adjust to you know so did you have the same thing of course and and we we were the same we had the illness throughout our adulthood and all our years in university and then getting married and everything and yes mother motherhood is a big part like being a mother adjusting to that that's a whole uh different we could make another <laughs> just individually about that but yeah, yeah. It, it is complex and that is also that adaptation uh, it, it's like a re readjust just change the medication they change everything you change routines and now you have to for a baby so that's even more complicated because you have to now deal with a little person that 
uh, now depends on you. So yeah, it is a whole different thing. Yeah, as you say, it's ongoing and things keep changing. And for me, it also has been like, if somebody would have told me at the beginning where I was feeling horrible, Maria, one day you're ill and, and you'll be on and you're going to feel good. I wouldn't have ever believed them. I would have said, you're a liar. I don't see myself getting better. I, I just couldn't see it. So sometimes what I do feel with chronic pain is like big wall of, I don't know if it's negativity. I don't know what it is. It's like a black thing that doesn't let you see beyond the future. It's like really hard to see past if you have the illness not on control. This is what I'm saying. If if your illness is out of control, uh, it's really hard to see uh, your future ahead and uh, or even to see yourself as getting better. Uh, so my advice would be work on that. Work on your mental health work on how you're going to develop in this illness and how the illness is going to develop as well in you because if you have a mindset that uh, I'm going to exercise every day I'm going to try to take the medication every day I'm going to eat well I'm not saying that all diets but yes eat well and take water it, it definitely helps it helps yeah. So, yeah, I want to make sure I get the, the linear part of the story correct in my brain. <laughs> um, so yeah. you you got the diagnosis, but you were only put on NSAIDs, which are like anti-inflammatories initially before you came to the United States. Is that right? I was on on metrotexate. I went to, to the U.S. with metrotexate. Okay. Um, I, well, that's another story, but I okay. my insurance got rejected because I also have asthma. So, oh. <laughs> so I didn't need insurance. So basically I was trafficking, sorry, the U.S., but yeah, I was trafficking my medication to, to the U.S. Anyone who traveled from Caracas to Miami, I would ask them to bring me metro like in a little bottle. And luckily but wait, for me, I was oh, like, so you couldn't get it. I couldn't oh. purchase in the U.S. if you don't have an insurance or if you're not registered. Because I was an international student. Uh, one of the things that you need to realize is that if you if you travel, you need to first go to a doctor to get a prescription. So that wasn't my case. And because I got my personal, I I couldn't go to the doctor there, like to a specialist. So one of the reasons that I left the U.S. is because my insurance got uh, I, I didn't have insurance, so I couldn't stay, especially with my illness. Oh so my that's one of the things if you're traveling or if you're um, uh, to another country, you need to know what specifically if you have the illness, what are the requirements for you to get the medication in that country? Oh, yeah. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. No, and but one that's... of the things in, in the U.S. is you need to go to the doctor. You need to get a re uh, prescription from the doctor and then you can buy it. I thought that students would at least international students, I thought, would be eligible for student insurance. I guess not. Yes. Yes. I uh, The things that that insurance got denied. <laughs> Because for just methotrexate yeah. that's no oh no because, because i'm asthmatic i have okay. asthma so oh okay uh, but so, asthma oh. is one of the down things that most insurance oh. say no i don't want this person but i either put it or i don't put it but i said i decided to say yes i have asthma because what if i get a, a reaction yeah. there yeah uh, oh I, I had no idea i was very young um yeah that happened to me so <laughs> okay, sorry. No, I just want to make sure because I think one of the things that, yeah, part of understanding and managing your disease is, like we mentioned earlier, you know, getting early, early care and being followed by, you know, a yeah. rheumatologist is so, so, so important. And so, and it's hard if you're trying to be a young yeah. person traveling. I mean, when I was 22, I volunteered in Belize for what I thought was going to be three weeks. And I was on Enbrel at the time and I ended up extending it to three months. So I had brought. Mm. three weeks of Enbrel. And then I was Ooh. able to get, and this is again, from being, having a lot of privilege in, in my family resources, my mom actually, or my doctor in Seattle re renewed it for three months. And then my mom flew because you can't ship it. Yeah. You could not ship it because it's yes, like, exactly. yeah. So she flew with it on her carry on in 2005 to my Belize. God. 
and I was able to stay. And then a couple of weeks later, there was an electricity outage and the medication has to be refrigerated. I was like, oh my gosh, all that work. And it's going to be like $10,000 of medicine down the drain. But then luckily they fixed the electricity. But anyway, you know, it's all those things like, okay, you know, everyone wants to to live your life to the fullest. And that's the goal that the medications enable. But I think sometimes health providers forget how complicated these things can actually be. It's one thing to say the medication can change your life. And it it did in my case, right. But there's still a lot of hoops to jump through. And like in your case, if you're trying to get a degree or do things that require a longer stay. Yeah. For, for me, I was lucky as well because I was taking this on tablets. So I was able to study, um, Except for the side effect, which um, was for me a stomach ache, and mm. at the time it was pretty bad. Uh, that was one of the downsides. But I was able to have the medication. And I think it brings a lot of tablets in the in the little uh, thing. But um, so yeah, during that time was only methotrexate and no prednisone, which would have helped me out a lot uh, during my period of the studying and that timing at the beginning where you want the illness like under control especially when you're young I think it's very hard but yeah that's that's one of the things that you have to keep in mind because also the when I moved to Australia I also had in mind what I had to do here in Australia also and it helped me out that I had that experience from the United States uh to figure out what I had to do here uh but yeah I was food on the first medication was as well metrotoxate here and then later on in life after I have been a citizen I was able to request um um a, a biologic which I think it was Orencia at the time what they did okay. but that was after my pregnancy so <gasps> I okay for years because that was my next um, question okay let's let's skip ahead for time's sake and so Okay, you yes. somehow met your husband <laughs> and then got married. And then <laughs> I met us. <laughs> yes. Um, did you meet him in the United States or Venezuela or Australia? No. Where did you meet no, him? So, so I went back to Venezuela and I met him like a week after I arrived to Venezuela. It was um, uh, after a month that we started officially dating. So, yes. Wow. It was. It was fast. <laughs> so wait, what brought you to Australia? Uh, well, the situation are so good. There's a dictatorship. So we've been trying to figure out a way so that we can have a family, live my life. Also, mm-hmm. we've been seeing a scarcity of medication in Venezuela mm-hmm. because of all the political situations. So this was very scary for us. Uh, we were both like, maybe we should rethink how we're going to project ourselves in our future because I could see it coming already because I was already, I went to the U.S., I went back and we stayed there for four years and we applied to Australia and left. So, but during that, four, those four years in Venezuela, I was able to leave the scarcity of medication. Like imagine going to your pharmacy and asking for a aid and they tell you, no, there is nothing here it's for so you scary it's, yeah it's scary and one time the scariest part was I had to go to because they stopped selling it in the actual pharma disease and you had to go like to the official where they sell all the drugs mm. um mm-hmm. I don't know how you call it. it's like the bank of drugs something like that it's it's a very dodgy place and you know. have well anyway I had to go there and one day they told me oh no because at that time I was injecting the cake because of my stomach cake so just to improve that. And they told, oh, no, all, all that we have is this. And they gave me like a full chemo, uh, like chemo big that they give patients from cancer. I don't know how many milliliters that have. It was this big. And they tell me, this is all we have for you. And I was oh. like, oh, my God, I, can't, I couldn't believe it. Yeah, wow. that, that, I think that was the last time. Yeah, I said, we have to go. We have to, I cannot live like this. This is not for me. So we moved to Australia. So, and we decided to have a yes. And in here, we were already residents so that my girls would be Australians because we also wanted to give them that second chance in life and not be only Venezuelan. And we decided to have them. This process was 
And I would have to go back to my 17. When I was 17, I was already, I, I want to be a mom. I had my nephew. And I remember the first time I carried him, I was like, oh, I want this for me. I want a baby. But at the time, I didn't, I didn't have anything. So then at 21, not only they tell you the diagnose uh, that you have RA, um, rheumatoid arthritis, but they also tell you you cannot get pregnant with this medication. Uh, that's the old, that's the other message that I got. The the one of uh, you could be on a wheelchair and you cannot get pregnant. <laughs> Those were the ones that got stuck in my brain forever. And I was like, oh my god, this is horrible. My dream of being a mother. And I wasn't even thinking. I hadn't met my husband yet, but still, just hearing those words is really hard. I don't know if it happened to you, but it, for me, well, it was shocking. I, I know that mine explained that as long as you're taking methotrexate, you can't get pregnant, but you can go on other met, you can go off of it yes. and get pregnant. Again, my doctor was very optimistic. <laughs> She's a good match for me, but also at, at times we both yes. had to be like, no, no. My, yeah. My, my husband, my, my doctor will also tell me this exactly the same. But I saw my illness getting worse and worse. This is impossible. How am I supposed to care for a baby if I'm feeling this awful? Yeah, that's, that, that that's happened to me. Like that I, happened to me after my firstborn. I was like, how? How am I ever going to do this again? How yes. can I ever, ever do this? I can't. Do, well, now I only have one. So I didn't do it again. But but yeah, it was it's a legitimate concern when you're when you can barely take care of yourself. Yes. So I didn't question myself of having kids, not even I did met, met my husband. And that's the other thing, telling him. Um, well, sorry, I know we just met, but <laughs> if you want to go ahead with this, I I don't know if I can have any kids. I don't know uh, because I didn't see myself caring for a baby at the time. At, at my 26, I think it was, I was feeling very bad. Uh, so it, it's hard to present that to somebody. Uh, like, oh no, I was 23 when I met him. So, sorry. And I said like, oh, sorry. I, I, I need to tell you this. I know you want to date me and everything, but I don't know if I want kids uh, or I didn't knew yet. After I had dream about it, oh. I felt that my illness was like pushing me away. I don't know. I, that happened to me. I felt I felt that I, I couldn't see myself having babies at the time. But then, um, on in Australia, I was feeling fine with the metrotoxate. I don't know. What happened to me? Maybe I was more relaxed in this country. My, I could trust my doctor. He said that I was fine, that I could do this. And I said, okay, let's do it. And that was uh, when I was 31. So I had my being at 32. So yes, uh, everything for me, I have to say, went well in maternity size, like my, my delivery, my pregnancy, everything went well, but I did everything in pain. Because my markers in my blood were fine, but I wasn't feeling fine completely. I was mm -hmm. always uh, with blurs. I could see my hips hurting during my pregnancy, which was like that adjustment from the from the hip side. I don't know. I, I didn't feel fine during my pregnancy. But still, after I had my first baby, I decided to go for this for my second baby. <laughs> Okay. Even though, yeah, even though my doctor said, like, maybe you should go back into metrotoxate, wait a few years, and then let's do this again. And I was like, no, that's not going to happen because I don't see myself going through this again. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't see myself. I well, it was something like similar to what happened to you. I, I couldn't see myself getting pregnant again if I had waited too long. If yeah. I had waited two years, I would have said no. So, and how close are, so you have a one seven-year-old, right? Yeah. Eight. An eight-year-old and a six. So and they yeah. are a year, a year and 10 months. So almost two years. Well, and apart. I, yeah, we actually tried briefly and to have them that mm -hmm. close. And then, and I, I was a kind of joke. I don't think I told us on the podcast before, but it was like, as if, you know, I, I'm, I'm an atheist, but if there was a God, it would be the God saying, don't do this because the first month we tried yeah. 
that month, I discovered a pilonatal cyst on my tailbone, which was had to get surgically removed and I had delayed wound healing. And six months later, that was almost on the mend of being healed. And then I got in a horrible freak car accident and had a concussion. Mm. And I was like, definitely oh, no. And then, and then right when my, uh, my whiplash injury and concussion were starting to feel a little better, my son and I contacted a horrible, horrible GI bug. This was in 2017. I lost like 15 pounds. I ended up developing gastroparesis again, and he was hospitalized um, for dehydration. And then, oh my God. and then I saw the year and then the, the years like taking, you know, and then it's like probably the same with you as so I was like, okay, well, I'm like 35, 36, or I, don't, I can't remember the ages, but it was like, it got to the point where I was like, if I'm not feeling substantially better by my 38th birthday, cause it was, and it was a long recovery from all those things. Each time it's like a, each time something new adds on it exponentially. Right. So, and I'm not even talking about rheumatoid arthritis. My rheumatoid arthritis was fine during all of this, Yes, but it was the other things. And it was like, at I was like, I'm waiting until my 38th birthday. And at that point, if it's not substantially better, I have to call it like, we have to call it as a couple, but also like, ultimately it is anyway. So sorry, long story short. Yeah. We, I mean, if we had gotten pregnant that month that we discovered a panelysis, like when I went into surgery, they had to be like, is there a chance you're pregnant? And I was like, yeah you know, but then wow. I wasn't, you know, so they didn't do the full on anesthesia. They did like some other weird anesthesia that worked because I don't remember anything, but, um, but yeah. So, you know, some, yeah. I mean, we were willing to like, I, I was at that point, my rheumatoid arthritis was under control enough to where it was like, okay, we can do this. But then by the Good. time the other things layered on, it was like, no, and maybe, maybe if I was 10 years younger, you know, but now yeah. trying to also be an older parent, with yes, more with, health issues. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, it's it. And then eventually the rheumatoid arthritis did decide to have its turn to get worse again. <laughs> so it really was, everything was taking turns. I'm sorry, I'm talking too much about my story, but no, I think I've heard other people say the same thing too, where it's like, know. have them closer together so that you just get all those early days over together. Yes. So, yes. So I did have those, um, uh, the babies together it was a good thing for me it was uh successful like i re i recently wrote an article for the magazine that i'm writing and it says it's called successful because that's it's just being realistic can you and can you say it again can you say it again it was about success but in pain like my oh, story right. is of success it's like i was able to have the baby everything went well like on the maternity side, I was able to breastfeed, delivery of the dreams, like everything that I planned went well, but I was paying for my rheumatoid arthritis. And the flurs afterwards, like after that, they, I delivered were horrible. Like I couldn't hold the baby properly. It was a lot to deal with. Plus, you're also in pain from other things like the delivery for itself. Um, you know all the maternity stuff which is kind of uncomfortable at the beginning but for us we have the pain which we need to get like under control and my decision of breastfeeding um, didn't help at all because I had like that mindset I need to breastfeed I'm gonna uh, do my best that I can and um, it was good I, I'm saying it was like a dream it was everything went well in, in that sense but it was painful for me and my arthritis and because also I didn't have help external I would have hoped to stop breastfeeding maybe three months or six months if, if I had to and then I ended up doing it for eight months because I couldn't get detached of the baby I was so attached to the baby and she used to cry and I couldn't hold the bottle properly and she wouldn't bottle it's, it's crazy that part is it should it's a whole world <laughs> the, yeah. the breastfeeding part but in the sense of maternity yes I, it went well but it is painful and that's one of the things that I, I see in realistic and saying my situation is different to other mothers who might be healthy it's it's a good way to go because then you will have your doctors to support you will get help from occupational therapist that I wish somebody would have told me that uh, yeah. nobody told me that and 
I'm and it sorry. would have made a whole different world. My next question was going to be, because I, I love how you've woven in throughout your story, like different ways that different experiences affected you mentally. And I, I forgot to ask, yeah. like, how, did you ever see a formal like psychologist or counselor? How did you get I help? Re- I read a lot. I did was um, because I was diagnosed right before my arthritis with depression, mm. right before it. Wow. And I didn't, it didn't go well with that psychologist. I didn't feel comfortable. And for me, that is a major thing to be with someone, especially for us who understand pain and how to manage it. So I read mom is a psychologist and <clears throat> I tried my best to keep positive. And because I left the, the United States, that didn't help me at all. Uh, mostly for me, what it has worked is keeping myself going to a study, a study groups where you can learn about psychology size, control yourself, but mostly uh, exercise, physical exercise, I think is like, uh, for me, my body fits and my mind, what I try to do is to work it on myself and read a lot, read a lot. Because at the time, for, for example, I couldn't, when I went to the U.S., I couldn't afford uh, somebody to help and I think it's key. It's the thing that you um under I'm on remission and being on remission is like a whole different world. Feel that everything gets into place. Everything in your life, it, it's like going back to your old self. It's like you feel more. Oh, I'm. Uh, this is how I used to feel before the illness. I'm trying to do is read. A lot of the magazines. I follow a lot of podcasts. If you don't have the access accessible for you. There is a lot of podcasts on psychologies where you can find terms that can help you out. Why I say yeah. if if you're really struggling, if you cannot get out of bed, if you if you feel that your life is not worth it, that's when you need to go seek for help. But I have always pushed myself beyond that. Like I've always tried to keep myself. I can do this. I can do this. I can work this out mentally, especially. But what I do believe is that if you're really struggling, if you cannot wake up uh, or get out of bed, that's uh, for a mental health advisor. Like- yeah, I mean, and I, I think something that I learned and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but at least in the U.S., like when mm-hmm. I went to first started going to therapy when my son was almost a year old, you know, I actually was surprised after I thought, oh, wait, I, I thought you had to be really, really bad to qualify for therapy, you know, but she, you know, I stayed on for a long time and she's like, no, you know, you're just having general anxieties about life. And, you know, you can, you don't have yeah. to wait until you're like wanting to, you know, like until you lose exactly. all hope, you can actually go to, you know, at least again, and depending on your insurance, maybe go get therapy, even, you know, even if it's not that, that severe, I wanted to make sure I ask you about something really cool that you created um, the Ouch, am I pronouncing that right? Ouch Revista magazine? Ouch, Ouch Revista. So Ouch is a onomatopoeia. Uh, how do you say it in English? Uh, onomatopoeia? Oh, onomatopoeia. So it's the same as Ouch in English, like when you hit onomatopoeia, yes. So, but in Spanish, it's Ouch, which I pronounce it is different writing. It's A-U-C-H. And Revista is means magazine. So it's a... Uh, Ouch for the cry and and <laughs> yeah. and revista. Yes, yeah. I created this magazine with the hope to uh, like to build conversations between patients. I saw there there is a lot of information in Spanish when it comes to medical terms, and there is a lot of people interviewing doctors, patients who interview doctors and specialists. But I couldn't see anyone speaking to other patients and talking to them and and making more like a friendly conversation between uh, people who have the illness. And that's what I wanted to do. So I created this one where I allow people from uh, people who are feeling really bad to those who are the, who have the illness under control. And we all get together and tell our stories and with the hope that people, because I feel with, when you read individual stories, I, I know you have, I've heard you said, don't stick to the individual stories. And I think it's true. But I also feel there is like this companionship. Like when I listen to somebody tell me their story, I feel, oh my God, this 
I'm not alone in this. Somebody else is struggling with the same thing. And probably, and especially in our illness, it might not be next to you. That person could be from a different city, another part of the world. And it's nice to see how we are able to connect through social media and see each other and and know that there is a lot of people going through the same, either with the maternity process and the illness, either uh, with the disabilities and limitations from the illness. It's like the same struggle. But for me, it's funny because I also speak English and I get to see groups like you, like the ones that you have, your Facebook page, but also in Spanish. And everyone struggles with the same situation. So there is a lot of common grounds, I would say. And that's what I wanted to get the magazine together and talk to people, really. <laughs> it's so wonderful. And I think, yeah, well, there's always a place for human connection and storytelling. And yeah, the, the thing that I tell people is just be careful applying someone else's like medication information and medical management to yours, because, you know, what one doctor prescribes one person yes. is based on their specific case in someone else's case, like their medical history is different, but certainly for like, just what you said is so beautiful, you know, the stories and the need to feel like you're not alone. The stories are the really the only answer to that, right. Is the connection. So yeah, I love, um, how do people access the magazine? Is it online? So everything I made the magazine online so that everyone in different places, uh, could follow it. The, The magazine is in Spanish. I have to say, I haven't just yet decided if I'm going to do it in English. There is a great magazine in English here in Australia called Spoonie. You can check that one out. It's in English. But for this one, it's in Spanish. And it's more like telling stories, conversations. But also, like, I focus on a subject. Like, one magazine was all about art and how art and creation can help us. The other one, the first one was the first diagnosis. And what tools helped me? Uh, like in the first one I, I said about, I talked about the spoon theory. Um, I also in another magazine talk about like the hacks that we can use to improve ourselves. I, I think a lot of people don't even know them, especially those who have been recently diagnosed. They completely lost. They don't, I, I didn't knew an occupational therapist existed until recent. And I was like, why nobody told me about this? And it's such a helpful, I think you're probably one of the most helpful tools that there could be is someone like you that can let you know this works, this doesn't work yet. Yeah, what I try to do is also like interview people like you that can uh, guide people to you. That's what I'm trying to do with the magazine. In this magazine was all about maternity and parenting with the chronic illness. And I was able to conduct people like also to Mariah, who has Mama's Facing Forward. And the idea is to get people to know that there are these resources, but sometimes they don't know where to find them as well. So I get a lot of articles that I can find and put them in the magazine, statistics uh, of what is going on with the illness at this time that changes often. but, But it's good to have those. Because as you said, it's like it gives you like a more holistic type of view of what is going on in the, in the world and and with the illness. Um, the magazines, everything is online. So basically, you can find them either through the platform issue or through the website uh, with the website blog as an EPUB. As this is an interactive magazine. So it's ouchrevista.wordpress.com. So ouch, revista in Spanish. So for those who speak Spanish and follow Cheryl, you can find it there. And also, I'm always looking for illustrators, people who like to join us in the journey and help us out. I find that illustration also helps us distract our mind a little bit of of everything that is going on with uh, illness. And I think it's a great way to to distract and entertain ourselves and, and make fun of the illness as well. So... I also yeah. do illustration myself and I put them in the magazine where I have like conversations between me and my arthritis. So it also has helped me as well to get to know uh, everyone really as well. Uh, you, 
all the people that have collaborated in the magazine. So it's been quite interesting. Oh, that's so great. No, I love the illustrations. They're so, <laughs> yeah, pictures worth a thousand words sometimes for sure. No, it's so yeah. wonderful. I think there's such a need for, like you said, more real down to earth um, stories in, in, in other languages other than English. And, and I know that on some other episodes, people have talked about, you know, the need for just more cultural representation too. you know, the online chronic illness communities are that I've ever seen are primarily, you know, white American women, you know, as opposed to, (laughs) you know, a diversity. So I think that's so important that you that you highlight different people as well. Uh, mo- most information is in English in any in any topic. So I think it's That's true. important also for people to understand that it's important that they know English and they can access, uh, they will have access to so much more as well. That's what I'm always telling followers mm-hmm. in the magazine that unfortunately, yes, I found this great article, but it's in English. So you're going to have to do your homework and you know, translate it to in Google and see how you can apply mm-hmm. to your language. But yes, at the end, English is like the principal language of the world. And it's not that it's bad. It's just that there's no information in Spanish. So I wanted to also do that as well, uh, especially for moms. Uh, yeah. For maternity, there is nothing in when it comes to chronic illnesses and maternity in Spanish. There is very little out there. So, yeah. Well, it's really, I, I think it's amazing that you just went out and created something that, that, you know, I'm sure so many people are, you know, benefiting from it. And I wish we could talk longer, but I have to start wrapping it up a little bit. So no, is, there any, no yeah, is there anything else you wanted to tell the audience or any message you have for people listening? Well, if you're recently diagnosed, um, I say educate yourself, find about the five stages of grief, because when you can understand your emotions, then you know where you're standing. Like, oh, I'm feeling angry because I got diagnosed or I'm feeling grief uh, or sad because I cannot do the things that I used to. So it's, it's important to understand your emotions when it comes to this illness because stress triggers uh, certain hormones that affect our brain. So it's everything is connected in the end. So it's important that we, we understand this. Also to understand the spoon theories, I think it's a way, a great way to explain to others what is going on with you with energy levels, with pain levels. I think that was a very basic tool for me to help others understand what I was going through. And to be honest, at the end of the day, a change has to come from you, from within. Uh, it's like Victor Frank from the, the man, the man. Man's meaning, Search for Meaning. That's one of my book. favorite anyway, books. Yeah. Man Searching for Meaning. Yeah. It's one of the best books that you can read. Highly mm-hmm. recommended. But he says that it has to come from you. So that's, that would be my message. Like, it truly has to come from you if you want to improve, if you want to change yourself, and if you want to keep optimistic uh, in in this journey, like you say, in your journey with the illness. <laughs> yeah, the ups and downs. And then your roadmap. Your yes. Yes, in the roadmap. Oh my gosh! Yeah, <laughs> it's a never-ending yeah. road. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's a never-ending road, and we keep learning. I learn a lot from other patients. I learn a lot from what you see on the internet and it, it keeps changing. Like yeah. we didn't used to have our logicals and now we have them and it's going to change everything again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll see, we'll see what this goes. And the more we speak about it, the better it's for everyone. Yeah. Because we feel less alone. Don't, and also don't isolate yourself. Don't feel yes. that you, you have to keep yourself, uh, seek for help. That's basic. I think. Absolutely. No, that's so true. I think there's definitely a toughness in the people I know with, with autoimmune diseases that we, we get you so used to being in pain and so used to being fatigued that we forget that it's okay to ask, you know, for help because we're so used to pushing through it, you know? So don't be afraid to ask for help. I think is is great advice. Well, thank you so, so much again for taking the time um, out of your Busy day with your two beautiful girls and your husband. <laughs> Thank you, Cheryl. It's been great talking to you again. And I hope we can do this again anytime yes. that you want. <laughs> we have so, so many different things. Yeah, so many things that we covered. I'm I can't wait to hear people's response. So bye bye for oh. now.
Bye, bye, Cheryl. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Room to Thrive, a membership and support community where you'll learn how to develop your own Thrive toolbox so you can live a full life despite your rheumatic disease or chronic illness. Learn more in the show notes or by going to www.myarthritislife.net. You can also connect with me on my social media accounts on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and even TikTok. Check out the links in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Arthritis Life Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Room to Thrive, an educational program I created from scratch to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported, and connected in a matter of weeks. You can go through the pre-recorded course on your own, or you can take the course along with a support group. Learn more at the link in my show notes, or you can always go to www.myarthritislife.net. And if you like this podcast, I would be so honored if you took the time to rate and review it. I also encourage you to share it with anyone you know who might benefit from it. I also wanted to remind you that you can find full transcripts, videos, and detailed show notes with hyperlinks for each episode on my website, www.myarthritislife.net. If you have any ideas for future episodes, or if you want to share your story or wisdom on the podcast, just shoot me an email at info at myarthritislife.net. I can't wait to hear from you.